0: looks like uh, we are now live on Facebook. We have uh, some attendees who've joined us on Zoom uh, in the webinar feature, so I think that means that our our study of the Book of Job for office hours, the second iteration of office hours, has begun. Um, my name is Chris Holmes. I am the Scholar-in-Residence and Director of Biblical and Theological Education at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, and uh, I'm sure many of you watching this know me, but uh, also wanna provide the opportunity to introduce uh, Brennan Breed, uh, who is the uh, partner in crime in this office hours endeavor, who teaches Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary, and also, we are joined this morning by Dr. Christine Roy Yoder, who teaches Old Testament as well at Columbia Theological Seminary. And we'll hear more about uh, Christine. And we'll uh, hopefully you'll be able to tell us a little bit more about yourself um, momentarily. I just want for all of those counting at home, I am significantly outnumbered. Um, and this is something that Brennan never called attention to when we were studying the New Testament, and that's just because he's a better person um, than me. But we we are we we are in the um, we have moved away from the appendix, as my Old Testament friends call it, and we are now in the Old Testament in one of the more important and challenging uh, and complex books probably in the Old Testament. So, um, Brennan, do you want to share just a little bit about, about what we're doing with this office hours and in particular with the book of Job?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks. And I just want to say thank you again to Christine Yoder for joining us. Um, Christine and I teach uh, uh, Old Testament together at Columbia Theological Seminary, along with uh, Bill Brown, another uh, treasured colleague. Uh, And uh, I have been so... deeply formed as a teacher and uh, as, a, as a researcher and as a thinker uh, by Christine's uh, wonderful um, mentorship and help, so uh, I just wanna say uh, a public thank you to Christine for being uh, the best colleague I could ever imagine, um, but also uh, I wanna say thank you to uh, Christine Yoder for uh, creating such amazing uh, scholarship about wisdom literature in general, so just a real quick um, overview, but uh, so she's written a bunch of different uh, articles and so on, uh, but her book on uh, woman wisdom uh, and, also the Woman of Substance in Proverbs 31, The Woman of Valor. Um, It's an amazing uh, book, a a very detailed uh, book that that grew out of a dissertation, so uh, for for those scholars among us. Um, But if you are looking for a quick, accessible, um, very well-written and and, uh, concise um, uh, introduction to the book of Proverbs uh, and a commentary on Proverbs, uh, her commentary in the Abingdon Old Testament series, uh, commentary series on Proverbs is amazing. Uh, it is so well written, it is so accessible, so please um, uh, if i 'm going to recommend uh, one thing um, for for the average christian um, uh, to 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 take away today it's uh, please read Christine Royoder on uh, Proverbs and maybe listen to us about job so in any event um, but the, the book of Job uh, I think is a really important book in general um, i it's i think the most theologically uh complex and perhaps uh, depending on what you think about it profound book in the Old Testament. Um, It uh, is one of the world's most uh, interesting and um, profound pieces of poetry. Um, It is written in uh, an incredibly complex um, and provocative style. Um, It is uh, theologically groundbreaking. Um, There's a lot of uh, biblical scholars who would say that it uh, uh, kind of pushes um, uh, the theology of monotheism, the theology of what we call theodicy, or really like it's kind of a complicated way to say the problem of evil, Um, but also just questions about um, justice in general and divine justice and human suffering, Um, questions about uh, why we worship God. I mean, all of these big questions, uh, the book of Job really um, brings up and then deals with in these very complex and complicated ways. So it's a fascinating book, but also recommends itself in times of crisis um, and turmoil. Um, I saw a tweet uh, the other day where someone said, 2020 equals uh, 1918 plus uh, 1929 plus 1968. That is to say uh, the the uh, Spanish flu or the influenza, you know, a massive pandemic, plus a stock market crash like 1929, plus um, a uh, massive uh, uh, social uprising uh, in that, that just like in 1968, um, and all those things are happening within the span uh, of a few months. So we are undergoing really a, a, a traumatic period um, in the global community and in our individual lives uh, at the national level in the United States. Obviously, um, we've in the past week even uh, come into a new era. I feel like things are just about to change in some way, but I don't know how. Uh, so you know, the, there's, there's this tr- tremendous uncertainty to what's happening today. And in that period of uncertainty and crisis, um, People turn to uh, literature and theological uh, reflection uh, that has uh, uh, thought about these big transformations or um, perhaps crises. And the Book of Job, I think, has some pretty um, important and interesting things to say. Also things that um, I think are often easy to miss. Um, It's a subtle book. And so I think it really um, uh, rewards uh, prolonged uh, reflection and uh, it really is one of those books that, that deeply rewards um, asking scholars what they have to say and looking at people um, and reading work from people who have done work in the ancient languages. Um, Jerome, uh, the translator uh, of the Vulgate, uh, translating um, for the first time in the Christian community from Hebrew uh, into, uh, in, into to Latin, um, Although uh, Macrina uh, uh, probably did a lot of the translation work that uh, Jerome gets credit for. But, but in, any it, in its introduction to Job, um, in the, uh, right around the year 400, uh, uh, Jerome said that the book of Job um, was amazingly beautiful and profound, but also translating it was like trying to catch an eel. Um, it keeps slipping through your hands. So uh, I, I felt like this, this is a, an important book for people to think about to, uh, in these days, but also an important book for, for us to try to talk about what scholars and try to read what scholars have said about it. Um, but in any event, uh, I, I actually, right before we came uh, live, um, uh, Christine uh, was sharing some thoughts about something that she had seen about that would basically answer a bit of the question of why Job in a time mm-hmm. of unbelievable turmoil and crisis? And Christine, would you mind sharing those thoughts with us?
2: Sure, um, I'm first, first of all, let me just say how grateful I am to be here and to both of you for this opportunity. Um, I, I just think this is a remarkable offering um, and I'm delighted to be part of it. Um, the, the timeliness of Job um, in these days, both of pandemic and um, the events of the past around um, uh, um, and the breakdown, um, the violence, um, Uh, what we're seeing um, play out on the news. Um, I was commenting to um, Brennan and Chris that I had seen uh, the very potent and um, poignant Uh, Appeal by the mayor of Atlanta, uh, where Brennan, where all three of us um, are, um, for people to go home um, the night of the rioting. I guess it was two nights ago, Um, and her starting point was at one of Parenthood. I'm a mother, and I'm, um, I come to this um, with deep passion and pain, Um, and that. Uh, her, her words, if you haven't seen them, I commend them to you. Um, I then saw juxtaposed just by accident, I was kind of flipping around through YouTube, and came upon some reflections by Trevor Noah, um, who was, um, they sort of captured him in a tight frame, um, and he really uh, was pondering what he was seeing and his reflections on it, um, and his observation that we were bantering around before we started, um, was the sense that the social contract um, that uh, African Americans have, have um, uh, pledged themselves to participate in, live by, um, has been so publicly, um, repeatedly certainly, um, violated. Um, that that um, these protests are eruptions um, in the wake of, uh, it's not possible to trust the contract any longer, if it ever was, um, it's not possible to trust the contract. And so the eruptions we're seeing is this, uh, um, are ways of pressing up and against um, so part of part of the connections to job, of course, are ways in which um, structures, religious moral structures um, may be fracturing and ways in which job is protesting. Um, uh, claims about who God is, how God is, um, and how his experience, his suffering, should be interpreted. Um, So this the fact that the book of Job holds us in a lament um, and in this um, disputational dialogue for as long as it does, I think in many ways mirrors this kind of Um, persistence that the contract doesn't hold if this is not a faithful witness what you're telling me my friends um, is not a faithful witness uh, to what I am experiencing um, in the world and what my community is experiencing um, in the case of our present context so that was it was sort of an idle connection I was making with Brennan and Chris but I do think um, uh, it was helpful for me to see those two ways of uh, naming the moment uh, juxtaposed
0: well, and I, 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 speaking sort of just broadly about Job, and as, as I was reading um, some of the material last night, um, I was thinking that there there are readings of Job that sort of tie it up with a nice, pretty bow, and how so much of Christian theology, right, wants everything to be neat and ordered and um, and explainable and rational, even predictable, perhaps. And um, the more that I've sort of Read Job with the assistance of other scholars. I've been challenged to think of it as maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't actually Tie anything up with a nice bow and maybe it opens it it not only reflects some deep fissures in religion and and in theology um, but it also opens some up even in its being written and so um, You know, we started this study because of COVID and and COVID continues and and yet there's an there's more uh, turmoil, more up, upheaval, it only suggests that Job is um, just such a good, good way for us uh, forward. Um, and so glad that we're here in doing this.
1: Yeah, and uh, uh, we we usually um, begin by asking our guests uh, if there are any theological presuppositions or hermeneutical assumptions or anything like that that they bring to the text that they would like to share. So, Christina, there any uh, insights you'd like to share with us before we jump in? Just kind of general thoughts about reading the Bible.
2: Sure. Um, I appreciate the framing of this as sort of as theological presuppositions because um, when I first saw that question, I started. Brainstorming, you know, it's always good to remind yourself. What are the, what are the guides that you use and how is it you think of yourself as an interpreter. And the first question would be, of course, why these texts? Why these particular texts? And of course, theologically, there's this conviction, confession. Um, that these are the, the texts, these are the words that we affirm and confess are inspired testimony about who God is, about God's work in the world, um, and about God's work in the life of God's people. Um, so these are texts that have been claimed and reclaimed and reclaimed and confessed as life-giving um, for uh, the people of faith. Um, and so that's why we read these particular texts and we claim them as quite familiar. Um, But even as they are familiar, it brings me to my kind of second observation of what drives me as an interpreter. Um, It's always important, as we talk about in our classroom, uh, Brennan, um, and Chris, I know you do do this as well, to always keep in mind that these texts are also stranger. Um, They are other to us. Um, They are the products of communities and cultures. Very different from our own North American ones. certainly, Um, they come from a different time. They come from a different region of the world. They come from from different language groups and they certainly come from different worldviews. In my hope, always as an interpreter is that just recognizing that um, is um, inspires in us um, humility on the one hand, um, and at the same time, a hunger and curiosity to know about context. Um, to think about how these texts animated and spoke into uh, the particular communities and moments in time when they were coming together. Um, So I think both the familiarity of scripture, these are the texts that orient us, claim us, identify us, um, and give us future and hope. Um, it's also, um, these, are te- these are texts that we need to treat as though we're greeting a stranger with the kind of graciousness and humility that comes from really listening and attending to someone you don't know as well as you might. Which brings me to my sort of third reflection about theological presuppositions, and that is that um, scripture is a site of encounter. Um, of life-giving encounter, of life-challenging encounter, um, and certainly of life-transforming encounter. And it is the encounter between reader and readers and the text where the spirit is at work um, that uh, that is the place where meaning and understanding happens. I appreciated um, Beverly Gaventa's comment, I guess a couple of weeks ago, about the the text is never the same text because the reader, Even the individual reader keeps changing, right? I never sit down to the same text with the same sets of questions, even as I bring, as all all the ones I've heard of your guests have underscored how critically important it is to know who you are as an interpreter. The questions, presuppositions, values, uh, history, background, the communities that have formed you, all of that comes to bear. Uh, But you don't sit down the same way, even in the same day, to the same text. Um, The medieval rabbis talk about uh, scripture as like a fine spice um, that sort of yields different flavors at different tastings. And that kind of Mm. sense of Mm. the depth depth and dimensionality of scripture, I think, is critically important. Last thing, um, just to echo Eric Barreto, I realized as I was listening to him that I really do uh, also think that even as we are mindful of ourselves as interpreters and this dynamic uh, engagement with scripture where meaning isn't fixed or static, but it's something that that yields as the interpreter engages it that we it, we really it's imperative um, for me to read not only in community, but with others who don't read the same way you do um, so so uh, yes, we read in communities of faith. Yes. at and, and I hope we will um, also be uh, very cognizant of reading with people who see the world, engage the world, uh, reflect on the world in ways that are vastly different than how we do. Um, so
1: wow.
2: that's a few places to yeah.
1: start. Thank you for those rich insights. And that's uh, I, I, one of the things I really love about co-teaching the introduction course um, with is seeing the way that uh, she lives that out um, as a way of uh, teaching over the course of the year. So thank you so much. Um, the, uh, and one of the things that we also um, are committed to is the idea that um, the, the, the text is an ancient text uh, written by ancient people who had their own particular language and culture and ideas. And if God's going to speak in some way to, a, to, to us through this text, it will also be kind of via these real ancient people who had real ideas and concepts and so on. So reading within that ancient context is important, but also that we aren't constrained by that ancient context, that it's a, a living text that continues to speak to us in new ways too. But it always kind of helps to take that little detour into the ancient world. Um, and so uh, just to kind of get us on uh, the same page about Job, just kind of as a brief little uh, overview, I mean, at least when... When when we begin to teach Job in our course, we just start by saying, "Look, we we don't really know who wrote Job. Uh, you know, church and uh, tradition and the tradition of the rabbis would say at least many other rabbis, not all um, uh, in the Talmud, say that uh, that uh, Moses was in some way responsible for the book of Job. Probably because it was like written in kind of it seems like an ancient time, like a long ago, far away kind of thing. Um, it also mentions Job sacrificing, and he's not a priest. So like, when was that okay? Like before." before Sinai was given. So like then, that, then, okay, Moses probably had to write it then. Um, but, uh, but there's no claim in the book that Moses writes this anywhere, right? It's just uh, a completely um, anonymous um, all throughout, like most ancient literature is, right? Um, but uh, one of the things I'm reviewing for this that, that I found really interesting is that um, several scholars, uh, chun Xiao does a great job of kind of summarizing this, but have pointed out that it has a lot of resonances with the time of the exile, or even beyond maybe the Persian period, uh, which uh, uh, Professor Yoder is, has uh, focused on in some of her research. But this, um, there, there's some, some clues about uh, kind of certain words that are used here and there, but also perhaps uh, this reference to uh, raiding Chaldeans in verse uh, in chapter one, which only the time Chaldeans come raiding anywhere near Israel um, is uh, uh, sometime in the, the, the exile, like at the time of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. So maybe that has to be, but also the themes, that when would someone ask these big, important, uh, questions about God and feel the freedom to be so angry uh, as we find in the dialogues with Job. So maybe those kind of figure in some way, but, but really I think more important than asking where and when it was written um, is probably this question of like genre. Like what kind of thing are we reading when we read Job? And I don't know if you all had um, kind of thoughts or, um, uh, uh, you know, any insights about like what, what, what did you all, how, how, did, how does that shape the way you all um, think about Job?
2: I'm happy to go.
0: Yeah, go Chris, ahead or,
2: or jump in. <laughs> um, uh, so I really appreciate your um, reflections about you know provenance. Where does this text come from? Who likely when and how? And and the situating of the text um, somewhere to the in the late exilic or early post exilic uh, as people are. Um, reflecting back on the trauma of exile I think is a really um, helpful way of thinking about um, the coming together of this book. And the question of genre is complicated with regard <laughs> to Job, of course. Um, uh, we, ca- we certainly think of Job as a wisdom text, um, that is a text that would be grouped in with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, with Ben Sirah or Sirach and wisdom of Solomon and the Apocrypha. Um, so we do um, think of it within a category of literature, that is that holds those texts in conversation. Even as we do that, though, we recognize, I mean, you're holding Ecclesiastes and Proverbs in the same group, right? There's this kind of um, yeah. sense in which the basket is uh, quite large and holds um, a pretty complex um, diversity of texts. Um, so if you think about, um, so wisdom texts, let me just say a, a quick word about the genre category. Genre categories yeah. yeah. Um, So wisdom texts are largely uh, concerned with a question about what is good for the human, sort of how is it one navigates personally, morally, socially, religiously, um, for the sake of human flourishing and ultimately the flourishing of the world. So it's asking questions um, of, of character and of moral formation uh, and ways in which both the individual, the family, the neighborhood, and the community might thrive. Uh, and it's speaking to those kinds of questions out of experience. It's pointing to, um, uh, Brennan uses the example in class, which I like so much, you know, four out of five dentists recommend this bit of wisdom. Um, this has proven true four to five times. Um, so there's a sense of garnering human experience for the sake of speaking um, into a moment and orienting people in life. Um, and Job, uh, Job is participating in that certainly. Um, and within Job, we are we see a host of genres in play. This is true elsewhere in wisdom literature, certainly. But Job seems to, um, as Carol Newsom, who I know will be on next week tip to self, always precede Carol, don't follow Carol. Um, uh, Carol has really done remarkable work, which I'm sure she'll speak to, um, um, exploring the genres that are in play um, in the book of Job and how genres as forms of speech Um, are pressing certain kinds of questions. They're asking for certain kinds of answers. Uh, They're constructing um, a world um, according to certain rules. Um, And so knowing the genre gives you access to what kind of truth or what kind of Uh, claim is most important and what Job does um, that Carol very helpfully um, uh, has described in book length um, is juxtapose genres in such a way to Chris's observation there isn't a a final resolution but rather there's a there's both an intentional engagement of different genres towards different truth claims um, and a sense of unsettled not resolved Uh, tension um, that stays with the reader uh, long Mm -hmm. after the book um, concludes. So you have a folktale at the beginning, you have laments, um, you have different kinds of uh, traditions that are put into play, you have proverbs, you have a host of different genres that are in dynamic, conversive relationship uh, without uh, resolution.
1: Yeah, yeah, that idea of dialogue that kind of continues throughout the book, that uh, it, the, the center of the book is this kind of wisdom dialogue, which other ancient people, Mesopotamians did, and Egyptians did. They had these dialogues where they would think through ideas together using characters, kind of like, I don't know, Brothers Karamazov or something, you know, like these different characters talk and try to come up with some idea of, um, uh, yeah, the, the truth of the world or whatever through their conversation, Socrates and, you know. But, but what's interesting, too, is to see that, like, yeah, Carol's argument that the uh, different parts of the book of job are actually creating a dialogue themselves that that when i read that for the first time that just flipped me over my chair i I couldn't understand what she was saying at first and then i thought wow that's a brilliant insight but thank you so much for definitely taking us through that um really complicated point about how genres have different truth claims or different ways of seeing the world yeah and chris did you have like any other uh, anything pop out at you
0: yeah i mean i think the the only thing and I, i i communicated this a little last night with with y'all in the in our planning document i've been teaching on the resurrection uh on thursday nights at first press and um i I know that job is is not anywhere close to apocalyptic literature um and yet i've been thinking a lot about how uh, the resurrection idea is birthed down of a breakdown, a breakdown of a social contract, a re- social religious contract um, mm-hmm. that says, you know, good people get good things in their life and bad people get bad things in their life. And that, that what we see in the book of Daniel chapter 12 or, or other reflections on the resurrection is, it is a desire to, um, to maintain God's power, maintain God's justice, even when the world seems completely upside down. And, uh, and, and when I was teaching, when I've been teaching that class, I've been, I've used the language of normal wisdom, you know, that this idea that this is the doc, the dentist recommend Brennan, you know, that normal wisdom says, generally, if you follow the Torah, if you, if you are obedient, and if you're faithful, good things will happen. And that, you know, the, 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 the reflection on the resurrection comes because that, that re- recommendation doesn't work um and and the people are being slaughtered because of their faithfulness because of their obedience and so asking that question of where is god um in the midst and so i've just i've i I I'm I'm so happy to sort of be studying job alongside of that study on the resurrection because again i think um there, for me there's just some some really interesting resonances among among these texts and and really wh- wh- how do you respond when social and religious contracts break down um And and, uh, um, to me, oh, sorry. No, no, that's, yeah, that's all I was going to say. Oh, yeah. I was just thinking um, about how, yeah,
1: you know, typically the world has a sense of order to it, right? right? I mean, for many people across time and space, ancient people and modern people, you know, you, most of the time, or maybe not most, but some of the time, it seems like the world has an order and logic to it. Good things happen if you work hard, et cetera. And then that, sometimes that, that works. But, um, and, and that's where a lot of wisdom literature focuses on, on the most of the time. Um, but there are these exceptions. And it seems like Job, pushes these exceptions to the limit to say the exceptions are important too and one interesting thing that i i was reflecting on last night is like or at least interesting to me but is uh, that in in job the the ex whenever you think about normal right this is normal it's normal for people who work hard to get rewarded you know it's abnormal you know and whenever people start to ask questions about normal you kind of get in well who says it's normal or you know what what creates normal, right? Uh, the, the norming, right? The, there's there's uh, kind of a, a way of seeing the world that has power, can shape people, right? A normal way for a man to act, right? Or normal, uh, um, you know, uh, normal. it's normal for a man to be in power, something like this, right? You know, these kind of constructions of gender and identity and race, all these different constructions that create norms and then kind of police them in a way, right? Um, and Job seems to say like, hey, the exceptions are actually important too, and you can actually do really interesting theology, important theology by looking at these things that don't fit into the norms or the normal, right? Um, and it seems to me like we're, we're looking at that right now, uh, you know, in, in, our, in our country in so many ways, we're in so many different kind of uh, exceptional states right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Financially, in terms of uh, uh, police brutality, and uh, in terms of the way Americans are starting to um, address race uh, in more concrete ways, Um, uh, you know, in terms of uh, epidemiology, right? Um, We're all these different states of exception. So that you know, kind of focusing on the exception, and I know we'll get into this later on. The chapters one and two are not about the protesting job, right? So uh, that's the patient job. But we, when we get to chapter three, we start to see this kind of radical protest based on um, uh, the exception and exceptions Mm -hmm. to the norm. And so I think that, that's part of the reason why I think this is going to be so interesting for us to kind of follow this through, but also how it, it does push back a little bit at uh, some of the different kind of um, uh, gender, con- I was, I'm sorry, not gender, genre conventions um, yes. of, uh, of, of a- the ancient world and of ancient Israel. Like, what, what's, what's a normal wisdom text? <laughs> like, what's a normal way to talk about God, right? Um, Carol Newsom has pointed out that Job... Chapter nine, verse twenty-two has the most heretical thing that any ancient thinker has ever said. Uh, Not not just in Israel, um, but she she couldn't find um, any. Religious statement in the ancient world that was as radical as Job 9:22. We'll get to that next week, of course. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, I thought that was a, 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 a maybe that's thought. Attraction. an entire hour in
2: and of itself. Yes,
1: yes, yes. Um, So, uh, so thank you for helping us think about uh, the, the the genre or the type of literature, this wisdom literature. Some of the assumptions of that. Um, but maybe we can just jump into the text. And I, I, I this is one of my favorite things to point out about Job. Um, and of course, this is an ancient insight, ancient all the way to uh, rabbis, in, anonymous rabbis in the Talmud, um, uh, who pointed out that the beginning of Job is actually a really interesting grammatical construction in Hebrew. And it tells us something also of a genre or a type of literature. And I, to me, this is a crucial thing for understanding the whole rest of the book. But um, I know that Alan uh, Cooper, in one of the readings that we um, uh, put out there, he mentions this too. But this um, beginning, that in, in the NRSV, there was once a man in the land of Uts whose name was Job. Um, and I love how that puts him in this land Uts, which is kind of far away, but where is it? We don't know. It's mentioned a couple of times in the Bible. It's a desert place or something, but we don't know. It's a far away, you know, once long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah. kind of is, is this, right? Um, but also, um, it begins with the two Hebrew words, Ish Hayah, uh, a man there was. Um, and th- this is uh, an actually an unusual way to start a Hebrew story. Mm-hmm. And it just, uh, the first time that uh, Chu long Sao pointed this out uh, when I was at Princeton Seminary just blew me away. That he, he said, if you look at this grammatical construction, the only times in the Bible that this appears in Hebrew, they're all parables. Mm-hmm. So this is the way that Nathan talks to David. Uh, in First Samuel chapter 12, where, where uh, Nathan is telling David the story of the, hey, there's a guy who's got a lamb, and this one guy's got a big flock, and the guy with the big flock takes the one lamb, right? And then at the end of the story, he says, hey, that's you. It's a story about you, meant to convict you and make you think about yourself in a different way. And when Leon pointed that out, I just thought that that was amazing. Like th- it's a this is a, it's, At least it's suggested to be a parable. I don't know what you all think about that, or if that struck you as kind of an important issue or topic?
2: I I think it's, I agree, I think it's a really helpful way, uh, right out of the gate, those first two words, Uh, other narratives start with Haya, you know, and it happened that, um, but this sort of reversal um, does, as we've been talking about, set an expectation for what it is the text is going to do, Um, and I think that compounded with the fact that um, who knows exactly where Uz is, right? Uh, it could be south of Edom, north North Ar- Arabia. So that's where we think it could be. There's reference to the Easterners, right? There's this sense that somewhere out there, but we don't know exactly. And Job. Um, for all intents and purposes, doesn't appear to be Israelite either. So you have you have a, a, a text that opens in the, in the first couple verses, the first verse, um, by identifying a, a kind of unknown place, a person who isn't. Um, necessarily Israelite, arguably not Israelite. And then you're being set into a genre or into a world that is didactic, that is um, like a parable, like a folk tale. Um, So we're being cued um, to read uh, and and this uh, distancing of Job. Um, Also, I think Carol and I'm sure Leon also speak about this. There's this um, sense in which um, that allows us to almost sit back and observe Job Um, in his land um, from a distance um, and uh, treat him in some ways um, like a universalistic atom or a paradigm um, of the kind of ideal, uh, perfect, wise man. Um, So it's it's setting up a kind of test case, uh, a a paradigm uh, that will unravel fairly quickly.
0: Like an so, I, yeah, I, I don't want to take us too f- aside, but I, I, while we're here, yeah. I, there's a question on Facebook Live that I think is, is a good question, which is, is, are there similar Job tales out there? And in the ways that we, we have similar flood stories or even there's stories similar to Daniel and, you know, uh, in, in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, are there other stories mm-hmm. like Job in the ancient Near Eastern world?
2: Brendan, you started to talk about it. Go ahead.
0: Oh yeah, but
1: I mean, uh, I'll, I'll share a little bit, but you can come back and, and fill in too. But uh, yeah, so there's there's uh, comparisons to different parts of Job. Okay. But what we don't have is something where these different parts are all smushed together. So the dialogue part where Job and his friends are arguing with each other, um, there's a, a different uh, kind of dialogues between a sufferer and some, a friend, um, with a friend trying to comfort the sufferer. What's unusual about Job is that they get really angry at each other, and then they end angry. <laughs> um, the other ancient dialogues end up usually finding some kind of common ground or middle ground, um, so uh, that, that's one thing, but also you get this lamentation poetry, where people are just crying out of how how pain, uh, how much in pain they are, and how much they want their god to help, um, so like uh, in, the, in Babylon, you have this kind of uh, uh, prayer of, of a sufferer, a righteous sufferer, um, where he's just asking God, please help, or his God, um, Marduk, uh, the God of Babylon. But so you get that, which is kind of like Job 3 or other parts mm-hmm. of Job. Um, so the, you, you get these like little comparisons or folktales, uh, yep. the folktale where, you know, chapters one and two of Job, I mean, the, the point of chapters one and two by itself is kind of like, hey, just buck up and like, you know, God God will... God will, will end up eventually blessing you. I mean, like, you know, suffer, suffer bravely, which is kind of what Philippians says, right? And that's crucial for me to understand is that like the different parts of Job argue with each other and they're not all saying that they're, they're, the other one, other one is always wrong. Uh, so there's something we need to kind of tease out over the next few weeks, I think, about what does it mean when we say, look, the book of Philippians says, rejoice in suffering. Job chapters one and two kind of say rejoice in suffering. But then chapter three says something different. And, and so are they, is that not right? Is Philippians not right? Or is Job not right? You know, what, uh, which, which part of the book is right or wrong? Um, so that's what we don't find, I think, in the ancient world is this very complex um, uh, combination of different genres that really require us to ask questions of, of the literature itself. I don't know if that helps, but.
0: Yeah,
2: no, yeah.
1: That, that's great.
2: Yeah, I would, I would, I just think that's, you had made, the reason I nudged over to you is that you had made mention of this, the kind of disputational um, literature discourse that we find elsewhere, Um, but the, but the combination, I think, of the prose, prose narrative, um, prologue and epilogue, and then the mix in the middle, um, really is an exceptional piece of literature in the ancient
0: world. Yeah, great so let's uh, as we continue to sort of dig into the first you know five or or so verses um, what 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 should we what should we make of of sort of the this character of job um, job's uh, behavior job's possessions job's you know uh life and um, and even his you know one of the one of the things that that we we read about uh, was his anxiety about uh his kids and so, so let's just, what are we looking for in these, these first five verses? How is the story being set up? How is this parable being set up? Um, and what's important for us to attend to, do you guys think?
2: Well, I think um, these opening verses um, in some ways are, uh, have all the catchphrases, have all the hallmarks Um, of what would have been regarded in the ancient world, and certainly a proverbial world, one that was informed by wisdom, um, as um, the the exceptional life. This is the best expression um, of what it is to be a wise person. Um, And it's so crafted that this is such crafted narrative, crafted speech, that you have this sort of fourfold description. You know, that uh, he's blameless and just, he's a fear of the Lord and an avoider of evil. There's four descriptions of him, uh, all of which are um, language comes coming deeply steeped out of Proverbs and other wisdom texts. So he's being um, identified by the narrator, and then of course later by God, as bearing these hallmarks of the wise, moral, upright, just person. Um, In fact, uh, um, I think he's the only uh, character that is venerated in such a way, the only character that gets celebrated um, with this kind of heaping on of, um, of descriptors. Um, That then is followed um, by a fourfold description um, of his wealth, his life, um, uh, his his property, his family. Um, And so you have this kind of uh, four being a symbol of completeness or perfection, um, that he really is the epitome uh, um, of all that would be desired uh, in terms of the wise person. Um, And uh, as um, in commentators, including uh, Carolyn Leong have noted, Two of course, that there's a question about how to read the relationship between the description of Job um, and his life. So, we have um, this is a sticky thing we tell our students. <laughs> um, what in Hebrew, um, a, one letter, a vav, can serve both as a conjunction or a disjunction. So, it can mean and or but. The very first word or letter of you can be read as a simple conjunction. He is all these things. And he has all this stuff, and this kind of family, um, and this kind of wealth. Um, Or it can be read um, as, and so he has all of this. uh, Which might suggest then that all of his wealth, his, his family, his family's well-being, his servants, all of these um, aspects of his life are blessings uh, that he has received as a result of his upright moral character. Uh, So there's some ambiguity in the very beginning uh, about um, the relationship between the attributes um, and the reward, uh, the blessing, um, uh, that I think um, it's gonna persist. It's gonna, um, it sets a question uh, that we're gonna continue to play with as we get further into the book.
0: I I I fear that this reference will will be a, be be not received by everyone viewing. But but uh, I there's a there's a, a a song by Chance the Rapper called Blessings, and the one of the choruses, the refrain is, the praises go up and the blessings come down. And and this is in some ways the parable of Job sets that up. That Job, it seems like, has has lived a good life he's the praises have gone up and the blessings have come down and and he sort of the at least the opening of job sort of sets that up that that his privilege his possessions his power um these are all a product of we might say his religiosity or his faithfulness or his goodness um he is he has passed the the proverbs wisdom uh you know exam and uh, you know has come back with flying colors his teeth look great for the dentist's recommendations um and yeah, yeah. and 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 we are gonna see uh maybe that that gets challenged
1: mm-hmm. yeah and this is like one of the things that uh, again when uh, liang Seo pointed this out when i was in class i just this made my head explode but he points out yeah he's living the perfect life uh, may, maybe that's related to him having all the, all the, you know, uh, perfect stuff. You know, the perfect Christian has the perfect life. Which one causes which, right? Or, or are they related? We don't know. Right. Um, but so that, that question gets brought up, but then also this, uh, uh comment, uh, in verse five. So yeah. Job's family is living in perfect harmony and so on. So Job's family loves each other. They're all parting in each other's houses all the time. They seem to be great kids and everyone's having a fun time. And so what does Job do? He wakes up early every single morning and sacrifices compulsively just in case, not because they did anything bad, but because maybe they did something bad in their hearts. And just that, like, he does that every, it's what Job always always did, it says. So he's got this perfect life. He worships God perfectly. And then also he's consumed with anxiety, like every moment of his life, and he's compulsively sacrificing just to get rid of any possible sin. And, you know, to point out, does this sound like a good life? Or, you know, asking us to think about these questions between um, maybe uh, blessings and curses, which of course uh, uh, also come up in that statement, right? So that uh, it may be that my children, this is in verse uh, uh, five, it may be, Job says, that my children have sinned, and cursed God in their hearts. But what do we know about that word curse there?
0: Yeah, well, yeah, so, yeah. so let's, let, let's put a disclaimer here, which is uh, we're, we're about to, to go deep down a rabbit hole of, of yeah. translation theory of, of Hebrew, but it's really, really important. Um, uh, Chris, Chris, Christine, would you tell us about what's going on with this cursing? Uh, in verse five and why yeah. what's why is that significant to a to a, a lay reader who doesn't know hebrew um or translation theory
2: it's a great it's a great um question i, I have one brief observation to make though before we get into the whole blessing just yeah. uh, playing play with blessing and curse um I, I do think you can certainly read job's kind of obsessive compulsive i mean I've, I've often when i've taught this text talked about him as sort of a type a personality right he's like is is Constantly trying to just absolutely make sure everything is perfect um, to the point where he's um, even when all signs are things are good he is still um, off making these um, sacrifices you know for the sake of his children uh, and par- part of me reads that um, we sort of tongue-in-cheek it's kind of a it, it's a it's a sort of parody of just how extreme he is religiously um and at the same time i have empathy for him in the sense that his life is so good right um by all the standards by which he would have been brought up to measure his life um and uh there seems, for me at least there seems to be a hint that he gets just how fragile it could be right that um that it's not a a given um that there is there is a, um, a fragility to it uh, that, uh, that it could be compromised. And so he's going above and beyond um, in hopes of preserving uh, what he understands to be a good life. Uh, and I have empathy for that, the kind of ways in which we yeah. want to protect. When we know we have it good, um, sometimes we act in ways uh, that some others would, would call obsessive when we're really trying to protect what we recognize as a good life. But the blessing, cursing, uh, oh my gosh, it's uh, I recognize our time. So the so the term um, can barak can be used both for blessing and curse, um, uh, but the, but it's not used that used for cursing really elsewhere. Um, there is a sense in which this is a euphemism, right? This is a word that's being used. Seven, it like seven times in the prologue, um, and at each time. Um, one has to determine, the interpreter has to determine whether to read it as bless uh, or curse. Um, So it's an interpretive move. Um, The idea of the euphemism is that um, the narrator, not the translator, the narrator um, is playing with this in that you wouldn't want to curse god right to say kalal for example in hebrew kalal adonai would be uh, problematic you don't want to put cursing it'd be abhorrent it would be um, uh, something that no one would want to juxtapose that verb with that object Uh, and so the narrator is playing with that um, and inviting um, uh, readers to have to make a decision at each juncture what's being said is it blessing or is it cursing? And uh, this becomes, uh, it grows, of course, in intensity to where we may not get there today, but to where Job's wife, um, right? Has, it says, curse or bless uh, God and die. And it opens up a whole new um, way of thinking about what is she actually saying? It's an ambiguity that prompts reflection.
1: Yeah, so the, so the idea is that every time this, this word that's translated, and I, there's no note for it in the NRSV, which is bizarre to me. But the word, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. It like, The literal word is, if you go to the dictionary, look, it's Barack, like Barack Obama. It's to bless. Yeah. Um, it, and it almost always means to bless except for maybe in like these seven times in job where it maybe means curse i mean i think that's like um it, it, that's a signal to me that the narrator's doing something tricky here uh, it looks like just yeah. a little folk tale about a person who's supposed to like be you know confident about god in the face of uh of, of suffering but instead it's like there might be something going on here right because uh, yeah. it, bl- are blessings curses or are curses blessings i mean it seems to kind of make us ask these deep questions like the relationship between job's Behavior and right. his outcomes in life, right? Does he? When it, yeah. When so I at least, you
2: get it. You get it right at verse five, right? So you, yeah. the stumbling block presents itself. Um, right out of the gate. So, the, so you see modern translations like the NRSV or, and others um, making the decision as translators to read Baraka's curse because there's it makes no, no sense to say he would offer sacrifices. Um, if they were blessing God in their hearts, that makes no sense whatsoever. So the very first occurrence of this verb prompts um, the interpretive move that the narrator seems to be um, inviting us to play with, um, that uh, prompts this, all of a sudden, Barak can mean to curse.
1: And it, and it actually dovetails with what God is kind of worried about, which seems to be Job, right? Is, is this guy good or not? Or We don't know, right? And just like Job is worrying about what's in his kids' hearts when he can't really tell, God seems to be worrying about what's in Job's heart and seems to be worrying in some way about the relationship between the blessings and curses, right? Does Job just bless God because Job's got blessings? Uh, mm-hmm. may, maybe they're a curse then, There's those blessings that Job has, maybe they kind of force him to bless God, and is that a curse actually if you don't, right? So it gets us into all these kind of theological <laughs> problems here, um, exactly. but uh, well, but yeah. So uh, uh, Christine, would you mind just uh, kind of laying, like chapter one, you pointed this out, you pointed this out many times, but um, chapter one is kind of structured and chapter two has a structure too, is structured in a really interesting way. Would you mind just kind of giving us kind of the plot of chapter one in that uh, structure that you pointed out?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, in addition to the, it's a highly balanced narrative, um, and what um, readers I'm sure have observed is we're really moving backward, uh, back, back and forth um, between the earthly realm, um, the world of Job and his family, um, and the heavenly realm. Um, and what that uh, we go back and forth actually is quite balanced. So you have. Um, you know the daily day after day after day, job is doing this as the chapter opens the verses we 've just been talking about, and then we pivot um, with one day it just it just so happens as Job is going about all this. That one day, um, there's this meeting of the heavenly council. Um, this is an image, um, of course, of the divine council where um, so, sort of celestial representatives would meet um, with God. This is an ancient Near Eastern understanding. Uh, it's elsewhere in the Old Testament, um, but it's in this heavenly scene, this um, divine scene, um, that we have the figure of the Hasitan, and who is an adversarial-like figure, the one who contests and raises questions and who in Job has this job of kind of wandering um, around patrolling the earth and coming back to report on it. Um, So we go back and forth between God and the Hasatan's engagement, we can talk about the Hasatan, um, and the earthly realm. Uh, And and what starts to happen, of course, is that as readers, we have access to both realms, right? We're watching both stories, Um, but Job and his family, Uh, And eventually, Job's friends don't have access to the celestial realm. Um, And that provokes um, the kinds of questions that the prologue ultimately will leave us with, including um, whose integrity really is at stake in this book? Is it Job's uh, or is it God's? What kind of God um, uh, does this kind of bragging, has this kind of anxiety, does this kind of um, uh, contest with uh, the welfare of a believer? Um, what kind of God would put that at risk? Um, so, so we end up as readers torn between, uh, well, actually for me as a reader, far more interested in what do I do with a God who would do this, um, than the character of Job, which the narrator, God, and God have affirmed, um, as being blameless and upright. Um, so the friends think it's his integrity. Readers are, realize a much more complicated um, world that has greeted them in the prologue, yeah. so it's this really del- expertly crafted um, back and forth uh, human realm, divine realm that sets up a deep tension. Yeah. And,
0: and just just a basic question, um, and and I think probably a short answer is in order. But when we when we read in the NRSV, and Satan uh, in verse six we shouldn't imagine you know a, a red beast with a tail and horns and a pitchfork right this isn't this isn't the notion of satan that gets developed in in later jewish and christian texts right this is something else yeah
2: that's correct. Yeah, this is the Hasatan. Ha being the definite article, the in Hebrew. So this is um, this is we see the Hasatan referred to also in the Book of Zechariah in chapter three, um, where the Hasatan is, is is sort of the one who whose role we often talk about it as the devil's advocate or the not to associate it later with the fiery. Um, figure, uh, pitchfork and all that. Um, But this is really the one whose role it is um, to oppose or to ask or to be adversarial. Um, And uh, it's only later um, that the notion of the Satan um, in the way that you've just characterized it develops. So this is an early expression of kind of a member of the divine council. Um, some have also talked about, I think both Carol and Leon talk about this too, um, that in some ways the, the adversary figure, the Hasatan, um, functions as a kind of personification of divine doubt. So where God is certain, right, Job is upright and blameless. Um, If there's any doubt, um, it gets articulated uh, by the Hasatan figure. So both here and in Zechariah, there's a sense in which um, uh, the adversary, the Hasatan, is the one who is giving voice to uh, any hesitation God might have about the character of, in the case of Zechariah, the high priest, and in the case of Job, Job.
0: So now, I,
1: I love, too, how the, one other place the Hasatan character shows up in the Old Testament is in Numbers. It's the thing that it's God's angel that right. is waving the sword at Balaam. And when the, when the donkey speaks in, in Numbers, that's the Hasatan is waving the sword. So that's not Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's super important for the theology of Job that we move away from how most Christians have understood it. There was a comment, a question in, in the comments to say, is, is Job dualistic? And I think it's really important that we see it's not, exactly. uh, that this is not Satan. And I'm not saying that just because, I don't know, I want to wreck people's theology. Um, you know, the idea of Satan develops over a long period of time. But in the book of Job, uh, if, if, if this is a contest between Satan and God, and that Job just has to pick God's side or something and fight against Satan, then why does Satan not appear in the rest of the book, right. uh, including the end? Like, you know, the God's speeches don't say, hey, look, here's how the world works. There's a, I'm fighting against the evil force and the evil, you got to resist the evil force. Like, that's not even a part of the story at all. And it's kind of a, it's like an easy way out for us to be like, oh, the, that's the devil, that's evil incarnate. And that's what's causing all of Job's stuff. Because also, God's the one who does all the bad stuff to Job, right? God claims it. Like, I did this in chapter two. God's like, why did I do this stuff, right? So uh, I think, I mean, that that to me is like, if if we take the kind of easy way out of saying ah it's just the devil and then it's the devil versus God um that then, then it allows us to kind of walk by or, or step around um, a lot of the theological problems that this this book I think is designed to raise right um I mean for me just to to, uh, to if we if we set aside the question of uh, of the presence of evil or evil, that, that is somehow outside of God or outside of God's power. Um, we th- I think we missed the bigger problem, which is that Job is asking the question, what if God does bad stuff, right? Like what if God actually does things that we don't like or hurt us? what do we do then, right? And I think today, like, we can ask that question, um, you know, looking at, like, the way that, uh, you know, for many of us, our government or our our structures of power kind of embody um, something of, like, divine power for us on Earth, right? You know, the king and the sovereign, and you know. When we look at, like, the police forces of the United States of America, we kind of trust, well, there is not in in many places, not trust, but there's um, an implicit kind of uh, uh, desire, right, to trust these forces of power that they're gonna do right for us in the end, or maybe maybe it's just a couple bad apples or something I've heard that said uh, sometimes, but to see kind of systems become corrupted forces us to ask these bigger, I think more important kind of questions, which is I, I think at least where Job is leading us to.
2: Yeah, and that's that's in some ways um, the connection I was trying to make with the Trevor Noah observation. That that this is the unraveling of the system that's supposed to actually be working on behalf of uh, Job, right? Job has played the game, um, so to speak. And Job has um, accomplished uh, what would be the hallmarks of wisdom. And that system uh, is now compromised by the very persons in power. uh, In a game, in a bet. Um, so it, it's a it's a radical unraveling of his world, um, which, I, which I know as we go, we follow this, there's two of these wagers, you know, that first of all, take everything away from him. Uh, and secondly, of course, um, do everything to him, but, you know, uh, uh, kill him. So affect him with a skin disease ultimately is what he receives. Um, but I actually f- I found, I was commenting to you both, um, last night, in thinking about um, chapter one as part of the sort of setting of this, uh, the prologue, one thirteen to 22, the description of the unraveling of Job's world, to me, in this particular pandemic context, was really striking. Um, I'm, I've always been kind of overwhelmed by this because it, it, there is a sense, this sort of refrain of I alone have escaped to tell you. I alone have escaped to tell you. Uh, the one uh, witness um, to the destruction in reverse order of Job's world, right? It takes it takes all the, all the characteristics of his life and it unravels them in backward order uh, to where ultimately his children um, are, the young ones are destroyed uh, in the last. But it's the combination of human forces, raiders, these Chaldeans and Sabaeans, and, um, cosmic forces, uh, a fire and a great wind. It's, it's bo- it seems that both heaven and earth are acting against to strip away um, all that has defined um, and given life um, to who Job is. Um, so it's a dismantling of the system and his world, both in um, a chaotic storm-like way and by the actions of um, human predators and marauders and um, violence seekers. Um, uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a pretty overwhelming um, destruction of the world, where it, at, the, at the end, it's all Job can do is fall to the ground, as he does, um, and lament. Um, and uh, prone himself, he worships. Um, uh, so it's it's uh, his only reaction can be this sort of ritual act of despair and lament.
1: And it seems like the the kind of stripping away of his life uh, to see if he will. That's that is the wager, right? That, that's it. That's the Satan it. figure. And somebody asked why why is it that it's written Satan in the NRSV. It's because they, they didn't want to upset people. Sorry, <laughs> they, I mean, but the, everyone working for the NRSV project when they translated, it, they all knew. They, knew they all knew that that was not right. But they did it because people would get upset. <laughs> Sorry, um, uh, yes, uh, but but anyway, but this <laughs> yes, oh boy, um, but in any event, but th- this is uh, uh, it, th- this the satan figure, this kind of district divine district attorney or something. Um, you know, asked, does Job fear God for nothing? And that <laughs> word I think is so important that chinam. <laughs> no right? Mm-hmm. For no reason or no purpose, it can mean both. You know, isn't there a reason Job worships you? Or doesn't Job worship you because he wants to get something out of you, right? Um, and that, that question, um, uh, Davis Hankins uh, has pointed out in his monograph, that just how radical a question that is, that yes. we can't find evidence that that question was ever asked before Job, and not in just in Israelite literature, but in Mesopotamian literature or Egyptian mm-hmm. literature. Like, why do we work? Do we, is it possible to worship without wanting to get something out of the relationship with God? That seems to have been like a, you know, world-shattering question, right? Would we worship if everything was taken away? In the ancient world, I think people would just have said, no, no, you wouldn't worship a God who's a loser God who can't get you what you want, right? It's just, it's Absolutely funny. not, right?
2: Yeah, it, yeah. It, there's
1: a, mean, contract a contract between you and God,
2: right? The contract that Deuteronomy, the Torah, lays out quite clearly and repeatedly uh, is if, and wisdom literature lays out if you do all this, then you shall receive these blessings, right? It it is a now it has it it's always recognized, I think, as a, um, as a contract that has, that we can see the gray. You know, you look around at the world, you see yeah. the gray. You see mm-hmm. the contract doesn't hold up um, in a very strict way. Um, but it is the contract. And, and you're, I think you're exactly right. The Hasatan is pressing the question of, um, you know, if the contract's not there, uh, if the contract proves uh, um, unreliable, um, would, he, would Job still worship you? Um, yeah, I think that's wow. exactly... Yeah, or, yeah, exactly.
1: It's- and that's like such a huge question, right? You know, and, and like, look, like today, right? Um, you know, God's going to protect us, right? God's going to um, give us, uh, uh, like Romans 12, right? God's going to give us like, uh, you know, sort of uh, powers that are over us that are going to do the good for us, right? That we can trust in, right? Well, what, if, what if God breaks the contract? Like, right. what if God does evil? You know, like I you know, oh, these kind of huge questions, right? Would you still worship, right? If you got nothing out of the deal and God only gave you bad? I mean, well, oh, it's like I mean, but, but this is a question that people I ha- I think have to be asking today, and um, you know, the the uh, yeah. But anyway, this this is uh um uh, we, we I know we got time, yeah.
0: I, I was just gonna say, it strikes me that that this question sort of gets at the heart of. Of many cultural despisers of Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. That 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 propose that religion is a crutch, um, that religion is uh, the opiate, right? And and yeah. the, the adversary's question here sort of cuts to the heart of that. What if religion isn't about you know c- causality and predictability? One of the assign mm-hmm. the, the the extra readings talked about. Um, you know, in, in in the religious world of antiquity, this idea that that the causality and predict, predictability of blessings and curses, that this question sort of raises that and just goes right, right to the heart. What if there is yeah. no order to that? What if there is no predictability, no causality? Um, yeah. And yeah. if we're wrestling with, with experience and our, our experience of, of both blessings and curses, or what we interpret as blessings and curses, and if there isn't, um, this, this contract, um, and, and, and what would, what would it look like to be a religious people? What would it look like to worship God without that contract? Um, yeah. And, and just, again, it's a very destabilizing question. That's a good word. Okay. And
1: like any good parable, you know, like we might be like, well, what's, what's, what's going on in Job's heart? What is, is, Job, is Job going to do this? And really the ultimate question, as Liang Xiao points out, is what's actually in our heart? It's, it's yeah. trying to get us to think about ourselves, just like Nathan's parable is trying to get David to think about himself. And instead of that big question of why do bad things happen to good people, we know why this happened to Job. Right. Because right? God decided to do this crazy thing, like to t- <laughs> test him when he – so, so so all to say, like we uh, – the, the question of the prologue really seems to be – different than the question that job raises yeah. in the dialogues like there's different questions in job that each yes. section raises and the question here seems to be do we what do, why do we worship god and would we worship in in the absence of any discernible um benefits that we could get from worship which is like kind of a huge question yeah. um, but but uh all to say that, that we're not going to wrap this this <laughs> part of the book up with a nice bow in no, part yeah. because each qu- each each uh, part of job gets kind of the the question gets punted to the next um section of the book. And as Carol Newsom points out, you know, the question kind of gets posed and then you take the, the book goes into a different genre, a different type of literature. So we're going to move into a wisdom dialogue, like almost like a philosophical conversation between Job and his friends. And we're going to approach that same question from a different perspective. Uh, at least that, that, that helps me to think about kind of the way it works, but also um, one of the comments pointed out about uh, uh, this kind of structure and order and questions of structure and order. And in between, we often have this um, idea, and today we see this in, in a, the political discourse about the riots and, and the, the protests. Um, it's like there's, there's order and there's disorder. Right. And those are our two poles. That's all we got. But instead, I think the Book of Job is trying to say, maybe there's other types of order and disorder. Right. you know there's not just like there's not just the order of like a, a, pl- a police state or the disorder of people you know rioting right. No, there's all kinds of order and disorder and relationships that can be formed and i think that's one of the fun things we'll be able to tease out sorry i just kind of spilled a lot i mean
2: i think the order the very order of the prologue mirrors the order of job's life and as that as that dismantles um, to where he's sitting on an ash heap, a trash heap, you know, scraping at his uh, open sores with a potsherd, um, you've seen, uh, you see the genre shift, um, because the genre can no longer contain um, or adequately describe in any way what is Job's experience, Job's suffering, Job's pain. Um, you can no longer stay in the same genre when it has, when it has completely yeah. dismantled around you.
1: Wow! Yeah, you kind of need to find other forms. You got to find another vehicle,
2: right? You got to find well, that's another. That's
1: um, And just to wrap this up too, the uh, the, um, in, the in, a, in a way we think about wisdom literature being not mainly about giving you answers or giving people answers, but about helping people to grow into being better thinkers and yeah. to respond to their own. There's no. It's not a manual. Like Proverbs isn't a manual to how to live your life. It's a bunch of different uh, competing thoughts and claims that are trying to help you become a better person uh, and a person who becomes wise. And so we, if we think about how ambiguous and kind of uh, these big questions that this seemingly uh, simple folk tale are really asking uh, and these things that they're bringing up, I mean, maybe part of the the answer isn't really to um, come up with one solution, but for us to ponder this, the way that human life is and that this kind of state of exception or normalcy doesn't ever really exist for many of us or any of us uh, ever. Um, But this also leads me to just, I want to mention before we leave, uh, Job's wife, um, yes. and that she, I think, plays this role of teaching us yes. about uh, this wrestling and struggling and thinking about these different um, uh, points of view or perspectives or questions. And she's almost always read as this horrible character in Christian theology, that she's the devil's handmaiden and all this stuff. Um, and uh, many interpreters at Chu Xiao has a great article about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but just this idea that Job's wife actually only says six words. Three of them are a quotation from the Hasatan. Uh, three of them are a quotation from God. Yeah. Uh, bless, she says bless, bless God and die, which can be taken as kind of theological euthanasia, right? Um, is a quotation from the Satan. And uh, you still persist in your integrity. That's a, basically a quotation from what God had said and the narrator said. Right. And so what she's doing, instead of saying like, I hate you, Job, die, you know, um, she's really just saying, these are the two sides of this equation, right? Uh, you are still persisting in your integrity. It's not a question in Hebrew. It's just, right. you are still persisting in your integrity. Yeah. And then, uh, bless God and die. And you know, those, those can be taken in so, it's like a Rorschach test for like, what you know, what, what do you think, you know? Um, but in any event, all to say that, that to me just, we, we are left with this giant puzzle that has started to ask the deepest questions I think that we can kind of ask about ourselves. Um, and so Christine, can you just answer them for us
0: really quickly? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do, Wrap it up yeah. I, I, I do think that, that job is uh is unique in some regards of how much it demands of the reader and and, yeah. and just yeah. how much work we have to do um, and how much it, it presses against a recipe a recipe book approach to scripture that is so common in certain circles that you know mm-hmm. that that the Bible gives us a recipe for the good life and actually it, it gives us. It, it invites us into an encounter, Christine, as you said, and and into into some some really hard questions. And I just I, I just I, I think that you know if we if we took all of the Bible, you know, and thought of it through the lens of Job, it would it would encourage us to read quite differently, um, and 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 even read with some questions and some engagement that that are in some circles, you know, discouraged. And so I just want to I want to hold up, you know uh the, 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 one of the perspectives that job offers us as as people of faith is is to 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 do that sort of active reading that job demands that maybe other parts of scripture don't demand um, as naturally but but that we are invited i think by J, by, by job and the story to to really wrestle with scripture and 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 to be left with this this question of, of blessing of, of good or bad, or, 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 you know, the, the wife's question of, of you, you've got to make a decision. Um, right. and, and how will you decide with this text or against this text? Um,
2: I think that's great, I, 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 um, I, it makes me think about, um, I know we're wrapping up, but it makes me think about uh, Kathleen O'Connor, our colleague Kathleen O'Connor has described the Book of Job as a puzzle, um, where the pieces, even if you just are to lay out the pieces of the book, um, that just when you think you've kind of settled on maybe an understanding of one piece, a piece somewhere else in the book is gonna pop up. It's not gonna fit, it's not gonna work. Um, so so it's, it, it is a challenge. I mean, I think you're exactly right, Chris, that this, this book uh, requires a kind of attentiveness and a willingness to hold um, disjunction and uh, lack of harmony and debate uh, within the reader's own self, um, uh, and to try to kind of move between the vantage point of Job's life, Job's friends, um, the world. I mean, it just, it requires a lot of the reader and is is um, instructive um, for um, books that are perhaps not quite so obviously a puzzle, yeah. um, but nonetheless, um, if we steep ourselves deeply in them, are going to challenge us and trouble the waters and give life and hope. So it's a Um, I think it's a really important um, interpretive enterprise to engage. And
0: maybe not fit nicely on a bumper sticker. Um, Yeah, uh, right. You know, if if your theology can fit on a bumper sticker, maybe it's not uh, adequate. Um, yeah. And I'll just stop there. Um, yeah, but,
1: and, and just one, sorry, one more quick little thing, but just, you know, how, how much like this moment this is, right? That we have many kind of easy answers or there are many easy answers that many people offer um, kind of uh, knee-jerk responses to. Crises and problems, but like we've entered into an age where like the exception has become the norm. And so we need to step into this uneasy space, I think, theologically, but also politically, um, of asking these big questions and not knowing the answers to them and trying to figure out how do we actually how do we move forward here? And, um, you know, in that kind of theology from the state of exception, um, yeah. it just strikes me. I mean, how similar that is to the the statement black lives matter, um, which uh, to me, it, the, the, you know, the reason that all, all lives matter is not what what the, the protesters are saying, but they're saying black lives matter because uh, if you uh, blackness, uh, you know, in, in the United States and kind of our, white supremacist culture, you know, it is itself kind of rendered into the state of exception. So if you start thinking from that point, if you start thinking about ethics from the point that every black life matters, you are going to cover white people like that that, that but they will it will it will start from uh, this kind of theology of, of or this ethical state of exception um, and make that the norm and then that, that that's the way to kind of overturn everything but it's a hard job for many people and it's uh, it's kind of hard to kind of pivot and often crises are these times and places where people actually are forced to confront some of these problems right I mean I'm just gonna think say that like in chapter three and beyond when for the reading for next week job is trying to do theology from a state of exception and his friends are trying to do theology the normal way and I think that's right. kind of the problem. Problem. Not to say the friends well, are wrong necessarily. but Yeah.
2: No, exactly. And I, I love what, I love the turn you just made. And I, I, I know we're, I know we're signing off, but I do. Sorry. I, yeah. I do. Um, I really, um, what I find in really intriguing about the friends among other things is that they really are trying to bring the best of tradition to bear on a situation they do not understand. Um, And and in some ways, that's instructive um, for all of us where we try to lean into um, our standard ways of responding in the face of violence or uh, um, bigotry or uh, which we fall into patterns. And what this book is telling us is those patterns are false. They're false. Uh, in the face of the very real suffering um, that Job is experiencing. The explanations the friends offer, as much as they love Job, and as much as they seek to comfort and console him, do not recognize the reality that they are sitting in front of.
0: Right. Oh, man. Wow, that's huge. Okay, so we clearly (laughs) could keep going, um, and and we will keep going for four more weeks um, with other guest hosts, but uh, Christine, I just want to say thank you so much for being with thank us, um, for sharing you. your wisdom on the wisdom literature and on the book of Job. Uh, and thanks so much to those of you who joined us on Facebook Live and who joined us on on the Zoom, uh, the Zoom uh, webinar. Please uh, continue to ask questions on the Office Hours Facebook page. Continue to send us notes. Uh, But thank you so much for the time, and uh, we'll see you all next week for the, the second week of our study.